0: This episode's guest is David Joyce. David is the high-performance leader and strategy specialist at Synapsing, a sports strategy and decision-making consultancy. For more than two decades in his career in elite performance, David has trained, rehabilitated and maintained multiple world champions, Olympians and more than 100 national champions. He was the head of athletic performance for the Greater Western Sydney Giants in the Australian Football League. He is also the first athletic performance coach in history to work with Team China after working with another national Olympic team. On this episode, Joyce, and you know, I discussed many topics. Firstly, what's new with Joycey? Why did Joycey get into consultancy work? I asked Joycey if he would ever consider returning to a full time role with a sporting organization. Why did he and Daniel Lewenden decide to produce the second edition of High Performance Training for Sports? I asked Joycey on the structure of the book, the contributors, and the topics covered within the book. I asked Joycey for his main takeaways from this new edition of High Performance Training for Sports. We discussed the chapter structure within the book. I asked Joycey if he and Daniel will produce the second edition of their other book sports injury prevention and rehabilitation. We discussed the timeline involved in the process for producing the second edition of High Performance Training for Sports. I asked Joycey if COVID-19 was actually a vice or a virtue in the production of the second edition for High Performance Training for Sports. Joycey shares with us what a day in his life is currently like. I asked Joycey about parenthood. I asked Joycey, how does he learn? I asked Joycey for his current and top book recommendations. I asked Joycey if he meditates. I asked Joycey if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? And finally, Joycey shares with us his current services that he provides and where he can be contacted. Guys, this was a fantastic conversation with Joycey and I hope you really, really enjoyed it. Okay, Joycey, thank you so much for making time. I really do appreciate it. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, good. Um, Really well, thanks, Robbie. Nice to be back.
0: Absolutely. So a lot has happened since we last spoke um, with you professionally. And then obviously now you have another book out. It's really funny because anytime we hear you talking about this whole writing process, you make it sound like it's uh, it's, it's very, very difficult, but yet you still managed to put out great uh, material so it'll be interesting to hear the process around this latest edition of uh, high performance training for sports but um, before we get into the book Joycey what's gone on with you professionally since we last spoke?
1: Um, oh, quite a bit I'd say um, Rob so uh, well it was, a, it was a wee while back now that we spoke I suppose um, in that time I've gone on and finished my MBA and I'm now working much more at a strategic level rather than, you know, athlete facing. I still do a bit of that, but it is, um, uh, I'm working much more with sporting organizations and coaches like coaching coaches, um, and do quite a bit of executive coaching for people, you know, in our field in, in sport and strength and conditioning coaches and technical coaches and the like, but also executives and, and, um, people in finance and gaming and all all sorts so it's it's really interesting and uh expanded the family got two two little uh kids and yeah just been working on that and and getting this other book out which has been a a labor of labor of love so it's nice to have that in the rearview mirror
0: and if you don't mind me asking what led to this professional decision what what led to this this new change
1: looking at doing this has been something that's in my DNA anyway. And I think one of the big things for me was when I reconceptualised what I what coaching is. And, and I, I realised that coaching is, is not just about getting people to lift heavier things or run faster. Um, it is about getting people to be their best. And I think that's, you know, one, one of the main, that's my mission statement, I suppose. Um, and and I think everyone needs a coach, you know, it's not just athletes that needs coaches. It's, it's, um, it's everyone. And, and when I started to reconceptualize that and and think about all the other avenues in which we can, we can do coaching and coaching organizations as well led me to sort of explore this area of business and, and MBA. And, and I've been looking at it for 15 years and, you know, I've finally just, pulled the trigger a a few years back now and um and I can see there's a real need for it as well and and it's something that I guess the other thing Rob is I I actually wanted to scare myself like I when you've been doing you know high performance directing for for a very long time like I have um it it never stops being challenging because it's a hugely challenging role um it never stops being rewarding it's just that the the challenges that I was seeing were the same sort of challenges that I'd seen for the last decade. And what I wanted to do was to go, right, I wanted to scare the shit out of myself and go, I know very little about marketing. I know very little about finance. So um, I'm going to be by far the dumbest person in the room and and really challenge myself in that regard. Um, and I guess the, the thing which it's really brought home to me is that the wider your perspectives on life, the more you can bring to a particular niche area anyway. So um, rather than me stepping away, I think it's what it's done is actually um, increased my skill set to be able to, to work in, um, in sport, and, but just in a, in a different sort of manner, which is primarily what I do now.
0: And do you think you'll ever return to a professional organization or do you feel that this new role sort of as you know a consultant is is more suited to well, obviously to where you are currently now, but do you ever do you ever think you'll return to a professional organization if the conditions were right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I work with professional organizations now, so I do a lot of work in the trenches with with professional organizations around the world. It's just that I'm not um I suppose I'm not going into one organization all the time, like every day of the week Um, and hand on heart. I think that's probably, you know, better suited to my skills and certainly at the moment. Yeah. And you certainly never say never. Um, But the way I can scale my impact is by actually looking at a much more strategic level and, and, and potentially looking across a number of different organizations. And I think that's probably what, stokes my fire anyway if i'm completely honest um i I don't think that i'll be doing i won't be going back full time to getting athletes lifting heavy things um that'll still be a part of me that's part of my identity but that just won't be the the sole part of you know what i do either um I, i think there's there's people that are you know brilliant at that and and what i've wanted to do is be able to champion them and 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 help help them be the best version of themselves they can be and i think that's probably where my greatest impact lies
0: so high performance training for sports second edition a labor of love you called it um how did that come about like i mean because anytime i've heard you talk about it or that even when we spoke about it and then i've heard daniel on some other podcasts as well it was all sort of like it felt like it might have been a a one and done like that was uh, a lot more work than we had anticipated but i suppose you guys had signed on to that the uh, at uh, two books at that time hadn't you you know you were so but um tell us more about the second edition and tell us a little more like why you felt the need for a second edition um and then actually i have some questions i just want to talk about like the whole process of like how to get you know this whole how you get the whole coordination of all the authors and, you know, with publishers. And I, I'd love to know that process, but uh, yeah. W- why, why did you guys say you what? let's do it again? And you're like, Oh Yeah.
1: yeah I, I think it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting question that I constantly ask myself. And it's a bit like, it's a bit like you get traumatic amnesia, I think. And it's why people run the second marathon or have the second baby, you know, and, and it, it is a bit like that. Um, you kind of forget, like the, the reward of getting it is, is absolutely not financial, but the, the reward you get from pride. And, you know, we love seeing people post pictures of the book up on, on Insta and Twitter and the like. Um, and that is, that is so rewarding. And the fact that you learn so much about yourself and about other people when you're doing it, that's enough of a tug. Um, and the passage of time is such that you forget about all the how hard it actually is. Um, that, those memories come flooding back when you re-engage, can I add? But um, I think in answer to your question about why we did it again, was we felt that um, there was still uh, everything that's in the first edition is still relevant, um, but we wanted to add more to it. And when the publishers came back and said, oh, you know, it's been so successful, we want to do it again, most second and, they, and they, they tried to grease the wheels a little bit by saying, oh, second editions are just, you just change the odd word here and there, and we put a new cover on, and it's about 30% different, and maybe you have one or two more chapters. Um, and both Dan and I felt that was a bit disingenuous to our readers. Um, we understand that's what happens. Um, but really, what we wanted to do was to provide the readers with a strong value proposition, so that if they had the first one and bought the second one, they wouldn't just look at it and go, "Oh man, it's just a, it's a little bit different, and maybe the colours, colours are different, and there's a few different graphics." So we set about saying we will only do this if we're if we're basically writing a new book. And that's effectively what we've done. So, you know, there's there's 16 new chapters, there's 35 new contributors, um, and a lot of the work that we tried to do in this, Rob, was to to go, Rob. Well, athletic, sorry, um, aerobic capacity is still a a, a big rock of, of um, athletic training, and so is strength, and what what's changed in those areas, but also what are the things that bring all of this together? Because ultimately performance doesn't exist as an island or there's no aspect of performance that exists as an island. It's, it is a, it's an output of a complex system. And so we deliberately put chapters in here, which are aimed to bring it all together. So if we look at um, Nick Winkleman's chapter about language, Brett Bartholomew's chapter about influence Um, We were really strong on wanting to include some mental health and mental performance stuff. Um, We've got a fantastic chapter from um, Professor Sam Robertson and Jackie Tran about learning environments. Because these are all the things that you need to have if we're thinking about a gardening approach to performance. Um, It's one thing to have strength and flexibility and aerobic capacity and, you know, power. Um, But if you just put them together, that's kind of, a carpentry approach whereas we believe in a gardening approach which is everything the whole ecosystem flourishing and and that's what we wanted to do and thankfully the publishers were completely on board for that and and as was dan and and we we set about you know um bringing the band back together
0: so how how do you start to map out the structure of the book now i know like it still has the skeletons of the first edition but just in terms of you know, you you have your sections of the book and then your contributing authors. So how do you and Daniel decide, right, are we going to stick to the same sort of skeleton from the first edition in terms of the sections? And then I'm actually very interested to know about the authors because what I'm interested to know too is that when you start to select the authors, two questions, do you have to like go back to some of the previous authors and say, listen, it's not like it's not an offense against you. We just want, we just want to like, you know, obviously get m- different contributors to have like a more sort of almost a brand new book. And then with the topics they cover, do you leave it to them like with the sort of team that the part of the book they're going to be in, or do you, are you very specific on what you'd like them to cover?
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess there's three questions in there. And if the first is how do we map out what we want to do? So you, we, we looked through the, the first one and said, okay, what's current, what needs to change, um, what chapters really landed? And so we, we spent a lot of time just speaking to people that read the book and what did you really like? Because ultimately this is a book that's in service of the reader. that is not about us. It is about what do readers need and what... Um, and so that they've been really uh, instrumental in helping us craft this. And... Um, there are inevitably times where you go well we want to um, we, we still want this chapter but we want a, just a different outlook or we want a, to freshen it up um, and we will we will do that over subsequent um, subsequent editions as well and so so there is a, a, a freshness to it because there's nothing worse than buying another edition and you just think it's just the same old stuff Um And so, you know, once we'd mapped out the the exact style of the book we wanted, which are the chapters and which were the what I call the glue chapters or the suspension chapters, these are the ones which kind of bring everything together. Um, It was just a case of doing an inventory of saying, who do we think are the best people in the world to do this from, not just from a credibility standpoint, but a profile standpoint, um, an ability to write, because that's so important, something important to say and a willingness to be involved so there's five key criteria then um so that yeah that's it's it is effectively project management that what we do and and dan and i have been around the traps for long enough to to know what we want in a particular area but this is you know dan and i just brought this together but the, the whole purpose of us doing it in this way, rather than me write it or Dan write it or just the two of us write it, is because we were committed to the view that um, every aspect of performance has got world-class people that it is their niche. Let's get them to write about their niche. And um, so I think I'm a decent strength coach, but who, who am I to tell Amon Flanagan what to write in his chapter? I can give some guidelines and say, oh, well, uh, we would love it if you wrote a little bit about velocity-based training and and, and how you go about determining your, um, your sets for this or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then go, right, well, have a crack. You know, what is it when you go into an organisation, what are the questions you get asked most frequently? That's what we want you to write about. And then, you know... I guess the other thing too is that we think we've got a really polished book here and and there's 27 chapters and they're all really polished um, but what the reader says is just the end product right um, They don't see um, uh, the you know the 17 drafts that have gone before it so there is just this constant um, buff um, polishing of each chapter um, to get it to the point where we think it is, and, and the and the contributor think it is you know something that's really um, something for them to be proud of. We we want every one of our fifty odd contributors to go. I am so proud I'm in this book, and we couldn't do that if we was just prescriptive, you know. So this is a this is a co pilot uh, co pilot book.
0: And just with the kind of second question, did you email previous contributors to say like in a new one we're. Yeah, we're we're choosing different people or did you feel there was there any need like did anyone come back from the first stage say hey like why why am I not writing a chapter this time
1: yeah um so if, I mean ultimately um people go in knowing that what we're trying to do is is write the the um the book that's best for that we perceive is going to be best and and that does involve having some hard conversations um we've got relationships with all our authors you know, all of them. Um, there's people in here that are my, you know, some of my all-time best friends. Um, so this is not just a random group of, of um, you know, gunslingers that we've put together here. We've, we've, we've got relationships with them. So we, never just email someone saying, "I'm sorry, you're off the team." It's just a case of you, you have conversations with them and say, "We're going in this direction." I understand that this may not be. Um, you know, the, the sort of news that you'd want to hear. In some instances, people just were quite relieved to not have to go through it again. Um, and, um, you know, there, there, was, there was the odd um, really challenging conversation, but, you know, it's all in service of, of getting a, a, what we believe to be a, a, a world-class product, and that does require some, some hard decisions and tough conversations.
0: Okay, so for, for the listeners who haven't seen the new edition yet, maybe just give us some insights into the highlights for you of the book, you know, the the different parts that the book is broken into, um, some of the contributing authors, maybe your own personal highlights in terms of, you know, chapters that really resonated with you or, you know, really stood out yeah. to you. And um, yeah, just bring us through some of your thoughts about the new edition.
1: Well, we've got three parts to it. So the first part is establishing and developing resilience. And that's kind of these are the sport agnostic things that apply to just good human movement, you know? And so that that, we've got um, mental health and mental performance. This is a ripping chapter. And what we wanted to do there was shift the narrative away from illness and onto health and performance, um, which was, you know, just beautifully delivered. Um, Matt Jordan delivered a terrific masterclass on movement efficiency. And so he's a, um, strength and power coach from Canada and works primarily in winter sports so speed skating and um, um, skiing and the like Um, and what he has done so well is talk in terms of some of these sports that are not necessarily uh, high high profile sports around the world but he's communicated in such a way that it is applicable to every sport so you you look at a speed skater and go oh right i get what he's saying that can apply to my gaelic footballer or my lacrosse player or whatever um and so we we also put in a a new chapter about nutrition and and fueling and, and energy management which is is super important the second the second part is developing athletic capacities and these are much more your big rocks if people talk about what is a strength and conditioning coach. They talk about strength training, jumping and landing, um, agility training, and Soph Nymphius has done a terrific job there to look at some of the new cognitive pathways uh, that go into agility training as well. We had Martin Boucher and Paul Larson talk about aerobic power training, which is a magnificent chapter, bringing on their, their work with um, high-intensity interval training. John Keely has written a great book on managing mental and physical stresses, um, and I'm sure he's someone that, that you know, and it's it's one of the most different chapters you'll read in, in a sports text. And, you know, he, he almost writes in a Malcolm Gladwell-esque way to bring a, just a different tone of voice to the book so it's not just um, research and, and tactics. It's more of a, a philosophical chapter as well, Uh, and and brett has done this with with influence and negotiation and and things like that It's just so important you 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 might know everything there is to know about um sets and reps and actin and myosin but unless you can influence you're not going to be as successful as you could be and he's done a magnificent job there and then finally we've got enhancing and sustaining performance which is where we look more at programming and peaking and tapering and um off-season and pre-season and in-season chapters and there's a there's a terrific chapter in there about recovery and you know most sports textbooks these days would have a chapter about recovery but what Shona and Lorena have done is is really look at some of the behavioral aspects of recovery so not just talk about ice baths and compression boots which is in every textbook this is much more at a um psychological level of how do you get your athletes to do this sort of stuff you know um, so that's really important and then um, Rhett Larson has just done a magnificent job updating his his warm-up chapter and uh, you know it's just a it's a beautifully he's he's a wordsmith it's a beautifully written chapter and then you, you shouldn't have favorites but gee um uh nick Winkleman's chapter um which is in the second part but about the queuing and train queuing for training and performance is actually unlike any other chapter you'll ever see in any textbook for sport because it is a narrative it's he tells a story and by the end of the story you've just learned so much it's just it's a magnificent chapter and then the final chapter or the, the um uh, the penultimate chapter is about learning and how we can, how we can optimize the learning um, environment for athletes. Cause ultimately that's what we do is we talk athletes to get better. So how do we optimize that? So the, it really is. I say that, you know, I've um, co-edited three books rather than two books in a second edition. Cause this is just, a, it is a different book. Um, so yeah we're we're really proud
0: of it. Yeah, I was just nodding in agreement there because it the, my first impression of the second edition of high performance training for sports is like this is a completely different book. I mean, you know, cuz usually a second edition is you know, it's it's only as you kind of alluded to earlier on in our conversation, you know, about a certain small percentage of it has changed and there's a few new like things here and there but this really is like you could have put a whole new title on this because it is a completely different book and like it still has the same ethos in terms of what you were trying to do in terms of like covering a vast array of areas in the world of human performance but it's just that there's so like there's so many new contributors there's so there's new chapters um because an area that I've particularly got very interested in over the last number of years was skill acquisition and learning and that was the first thing I was like, I wonder if they put a skill acquisition chapter in here. And, like, yeah, right. and like, I go and was scrolling down and I was just like, no, no, no. And then as you said, it's the most, I was like learning. And it's was like, ah, Sandra Robinson, And and I've actually never heard of Jacqueline Tran. So that's another thing I love too, is that you hear of a new practitioner and then you can go off and look at their research that opens up a whole other window that you can go down. Um, so
1: so Jackie, Jackie's the learning manager at High Performance Sport New Zealand. Hmm. And um, her job, is to work with coaches and performance staff about how to optimize a learning environment. She's an absolute A-lister and um, she's also the very best um, note taker I've ever seen. If you sit next to her in a conference, she just comes up and and her slides are just magnificent. She's really quite artistic um, and the way she communicates uh, it far exceeds mine. Like I, I'm sort of I, I I'm I'm reasonably adept at putting together a slide deck, being a consultant um, and and writing. But she's just so creative, and that's what I love about this chapter as well.
0: So fr- from this whole process of the second edition, Joycey, what what did you take away from it personally? Like, is there like was there anything within this whole process? really struck you in terms of adding to you as a practitioner
1: uh yeah so there's lots there's lots the the approach to speed training that Stu McMillan, one of one of if not the best um speed coaches in the world and and JB Marin um has fundamentally changed the way I I look at speed training from a, a force production and and a um and a training perspective but in terms if I was to write another book um, I would be looking to take the reader on journeys more like what uh, Nick Winkleman and John Keeley have done and, and be a uh, talk much more in a, a storytelling voice. Cause that's the way we relate. Like humans are an, a narrative creatures and there is a real value in having facts and figures. And we've done that in some aspects, you know, Um what what those guys and brett have shown with their chapters is that you can write in that voice and still portray really complicated complex scientific ideas in a arguably more engaging way and memorable way and ultimately what we what we're doing is to make these concepts stick so
0: th- th- this was a huge eye opener for me. Yeah, and which, which, well, I, I, again, it might be more than one, but which particular topic kind of uh, surprised you in terms of? So, just going back to my own experience, before I really got into skill acquisition, I, uh, I don't know why, but I had this cognitive bias that it was boring and I wouldn't like it, because I suppose my initial introduction to human performance was very much strength and conditioning and the quantified realm so you know the way that at skill acquisition is it's very qualitative and it's kind of you know to use a real layman's term airy fairy because we can't measure learning you know so we can only like infer that learning happens over time through performance so I was really like oh there's all this you know constraints led approach and I just thought it was Yeah, I suppose I was very left-brained analytical going into it. And then when I got into it, I just got fascinated. Like, just like, I know this will sound so simple, but it was just the whole concept that, like, I could have, I I, I could be able to execute a particular motor, uh, motor skill in one specific moment in time. And that could, 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 be completely gone in like just a number of seconds due to an opponent or something in the environment or like i just I, I sprinted for five seconds and now the fatigue from that five seconds won't let me execute what i could just previously do a second like it's just it was just like whole i was like oh my god and then you got into like you know the fluctuators and stabilizer fluctuators and just it was just uh, uh, like i loved it i, I actually love skill acquisition now so and I'm rambling here, but my question is to you going through the second edition, was there any particular topic where, where you were kind of going into going, you know, I know a bit about that, it doesn't really excite me? And then you got into go, wow, that was, I uh, really, that really now has piqued my interest.
1: Um, there was nothing that I wasn't particularly excited about simply because, um, so all the chapters that were come from the first uh, edition like I know really well because I've read them a million times and you you develop that, that excitement for it. And all the new chapters were ones that we selectively put in there as well. So no one, no one dragged us kicking and screaming to any of these chapters, but that they were our choices to put in there. Um, What it's funny you talk about skill act, because one of the things that I really wanted to do was, um, Dan and I have both got this really strong view that there is a big difference between teaching and learning and often what we do is we get focused on teaching which is the teacher that's teacher centric you know I feel good because I've told a lot of information but ultimately what it is all about is improving the future for the person who is you're trying to teach so you need to come at this from the learner's perspective and and i think sam and jackie did such a great job in in this chapter talking about um how to construct the environment and your cues and and these sorts of things to to optimize the learning environment And, and i just learned so much in there that to be honest i i Take with me in my consulting work. You know, if I'm talking to corporates, if I'm talking to individuals through my coaching or or athletes, whatever it is, there's stuff that um, that Sam and Jackie talk about in learning that is applicable across everything. You know, I use it. I use it with my kids because um, we're all humans and learning is what we do. So I, I just, I was enthralled by that, absolutely enthralled by it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can, I can resonate to that because as, as I briefly said, it's uh it's an area now of research that I just, I fell in love with. Um, just one thing I noticed too, just reviewing the uh, second edition is the chapter layout. It's really, really beautiful. So you have like these little sections of wise ways, and then there's a summary at the end of each chapter. And I, I I really do like books that put in that extra bit of effort for the reader, for the end user, you know, in terms of takeaways and, and the main highlights of the chapter. Just uh, and I, like as I was reading through, like I kind of had an appreciation. Like I could nearly, not that I, I've i never actually spoken with Daniel and we've never met in person, but I can nearly just see you two guys like saying, you know, this is an important structure because, you know, we, we want people to be able to like, you know, it's kind of like when people go to the end of the, the chapter and they go, "What did I just learn there?" And then the you know summary, and you're like, "Oh yes!" And like, it's really just great to have those takeaways. Um, so maybe j- just discuss like the importance of that chapter structure. Is that something that you and Daniel had spent time on? Because there there was obviously that carryover from the first edition, but it's just it's just something that resonated with me as I just um, reviewed the second edition.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really astute pickup, uh, Robbie. Because what we wanted to do was. Every um, on pretty much every page have the, these these things called wise ways, which were to really bring out a, a concept. So it's not just a, you know, how sometimes you're reading um, an article and there'll be something in bold, but it will actually just be repeating something that's in the main text. That's not what we've done here. What these these little sections or wisdom wisdom boxes and the like, what we've really tried to do there is draw out a specific. Um, example or a particular point which highlights or augments the, the rest of the, ta- the text so you, you'd almost if you were just so time poor what you could do would be read the introduction read the wise ways inserts and then read the bullet points at the end and you go okay I've, I've got a big part of this you, you clearly wouldn't have the depth but you would you would get it if you know what I mean Um, and uh, certainly the, the feedback that we've had from the readers was some readers so far is to be able to go, that's, they're looking through the book going, Oh, where do I start? And so they've actually done exactly what I've just said and going, okay, so that has really piqued my interest. That's the chapter I'm going to start with rather than having to invest all your time to read that chapter and go, that was good, but it wasn't quite what I need at the moment. So it's kind of a, a file or a referencing system, I suppose, and then what we did was we pressed every single contributor to say, um, you know, at the end of your chapter, if people remember nothing else, nothing else, what are the five things that you are desperate for them to take away? And that forms the what we call the non-negotiables. So these are the things that, you know, if you walk into... Any organization, and you're talking about speed and speed training. What does Stu and JB say are the absolute non-negotiables for every organization to do? Once you've got that, then you can start to make things a bit better. But you've got to nail these fundamentals, and that's what we wanted to get to at the with the with the sort of conclusion non non-negotiables bit.
0: Another thing I picked up on too was that you, you did have some. Um, contributors from the first edition contribute again, but some of them contribute on different topics. So like Darcy, for instance, um, Darcy did a, a chapter now in Season where his previous um, contribution to the first edition was on developing repeated uh, sprint ability. So because um, it, it was just kind of earlier on, you touched on, you know, you wanted specific experts in their own niches. And it's like, well, you got people who ha- are experts in some, you know, a few different niches. So th- I just found that very interesting too. So was, was that kind of maybe when you were a question for you now is that when you were mapping out the first edition was there times we were like you know we could get this guy to do this topic and that topic so when you came back to the second edition you were like now we can actually ask him to or ask him or her to t- touch on this now
1: oh absolutely so yeah that again another astute pickup that that is absolutely the case and and to be honest robin it's also it's a bit of a um, a way of understanding the person behind the chapter as well and you can see that darcy has evolved in his practitioner style as well so he's not um as focused on the x's and o's and and much more on building out a system and a structure and that is um that's evident in his his chapter as well and but not just evident in his chapter but evident in the selection of the chapter so when we said to him you know we want you to do this again. We have this conversation and it's a two-way thing about what do you want to write about? What, what's really driving you at the moment? Because we know that Darcy could have written um, a fantastic chapter on repeat, repeat um, endurance again. But if that's not where his passion lies, we're not going to get the, the true masterful self out of him that we could if we're giving him something that really energizes him and we wanted all our contributors to be excited about what they were writing about so yeah you're you're actually the first person to pick that up but it's exactly the case that's that's why we've done that
0: because they actually looked at the book <laughs> Did you, ever, you know when you sometimes you listen to podcasts and you're like that host clearly has not read this person's uh, literature before <laughs> um,
1: well well um, this is one of the very first um pods that we've done. Um, I've done a couple, but not too many, and I've been lucky enough that I haven't encountered that. But I know exactly the phenomenon that you're talking
0: yeah, about. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I would, um, I suppose like the four agreements ever since I read that book, I always tried never to make assumptions, but I, I would assume that you'd be very selective of who you, you know, the, the host and the podcast you go into. so I know that, that the podcast host would usually be a top quality host in that case that they've done their homework.
1: <laughs> a a pet on the back there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, just question for you to sports injury prevention and rehabilitation. Is yep. there, is there a second edition for that?
1: That um, will certainly not at the, the same time as, as the yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, it's something that the publishers have been in contact with us about, and and Dan and I have been in discussions for. Um, we don't know that we're ready to land that plane just yet, um, but yeah, yeah, it's certainly certainly in the back of our minds.
0: So, and um, one just for myself too, I'm interested or intrigued to know about the timeline of these projects. I mean, is this like two years in the works 18 months three years in the works i mean how long does it actually because just as 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 we were hopping online i I picked up the because i actually have the the hard copy of the first edition right here and i just wanted to um to see when it was published and it says 2014 but like i'm thinking like you know like in research papers it's like you go into some websites and say well the paper was 2014 another one says 2013 and you realize that like a lot of the background research was like Two or three years leading into when it was actually published. So I'm thinking, you know, was that book in the works since 2012, which is like nearly a decade now. So, like, how long is this whole process to get this to get this book out?
1: The publishers came to us probably about um, two and a half, three years ago now, Robbie. And so there's a couple of different drivers for this. That usually a book has got a shelf life of around about five years. Like a textbook has got a shelf life of around about five years. And um, so the the and the first one was just so monumentally successful around the world that there was this sense that we wanted to capitalize on this from from a business perspective from the from the um, publishers' um, point of view, and that when they can start to see sales starting to to drop off, they go, okay, we might, we might need to refreshen this. Um, And sales drop off because, you know, uh, so many people have bought it in the first instance, but also because there's a new generation coming through. There's new students that, you know, maybe haven't seen the first one because it was published a number of years ago now. So um, we started this about, we started having conversations about this, uh, I don't know, about two and a half years ago. And Dan and I both would have liked to have landed this probably about 12 months ago. Um, there was a big impact of COVID, as you can imagine, um, but yeah. So I'd say it's probably somewhere between nine and twelve months after when we'd initially anticipated it. But yeah, it's funny. Serendipity is a is a is a funny mistress, and it seems to have landed at a pretty good time. So we're not disappointed that it's that it's landed now.
0: You mentioned the. The sea word there, COVID, which kind of segues into my next question: Was it a vice or a virtue?
1: Uh, I don't know that too many places would call COVID a virtue. Um, but certainly, I don't. I don't think we would say that in in terms of the the net good. Um, <laughs> it would be a bold statement to say that it was a net good. But um, oh, I don't. I don't. I'm fairly agnostic about that. I don't think it's been. Um, uh, a powerful thing for us in a positive or a negative sense uh what it has done is that it's just kept it on my radar for a little bit longer than um what i had initially thought um but you know we're, we're completely happy that it's landed now
0: stuff so joyce you're a little more into yourself right now um what is the typical day in the life for david joyce
1: uh, well, a bit of that depends on what time the young fellow wakes us up. So we've got young Rory who's five months old and um, currently he's fond of a 3am wake up, which um, his mum and I are less fond of. But um, so there's a bit of that. Uh, I'll, I'll train first thing in the morning. Uh, I think fundamentally, like physiologically, I'm probably better if I train in the afternoons. Like I think I get a better performance. I just know that I'm set up for a much better day if I do something in the morning and get it, you know, um, and really try and, um, try and keep the, keep the old man from approaching on me, you know? And, um, so I I do that. And then it depends on the day. and depends on the client that I'm working with. So I'm doing a lot of strategy work for the Australian Institute of Sport at the moment in, in developing our coaches and developing our performance support, um, personnel like that how we do that for leading up to brisbane 32 uh for the olympics Um, i'm doing a lot of work with a startup a mental performance startup so um the the business strategy side there and the science strategy side which is super exciting Um, we've just landed some some big funding there so we'll, we'll go into that and then doing some work uh doing a lot of work in how we can get more women into high performance coaching as well so that's a big part of, of my job. And I would say about 20 to 25% of the rest of my time is um, coaching clients. Um, so whether, as I said earlier, whether that's strength coaches or a head coach in the NFL, or if you're a, um, uh, an uh, investor or whatever it is, I do a lot of work in that. In that realm that's probably 20 to 25 percent of my time so um and the rest of it is spending time with with the family and you know hopefully getting out of lockdown which we emerged from on monday so we're getting to see a little bit more of the world now so it's uh, it's exciting times ahead
0: well i can uh, fully resonate with lockdown um we've been pretty much out of it the last three months but they're hoping now on october 22nd to have every single thing gone in terms of restrictions here so okay. hopefully now that will that will happen. You've mentioned your family a number of times um very interested just to ask your approach to parenthood. I know that might seem a bit left field now but um I'm just always intrigued uh, cuz you know, it's a it's a conversation I have with, with a lot of my friends who are who are fathers now and, and mothers because obviously I have friends who are females as well. But myself and, and myself and uh, Kirwan and Flat, we touched on this just in terms of like how fatherhood's changed him. So, just in, in terms of yourself, like what what's your approach to, to parenthood? Like, what, what do you hope for your kids?
1: I I hope that they are grounded in good values. And for my kids, I want them to be adventurous, brave, curious, calm, and kind. And so, what I try and do is model that myself. And um, I want them to be really good decision makers. Um, and understand, understand various different types of perspectives. That their 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 view of seeing the world is only their view. Um, because I'm not going to be able to hold their hand and make every decision for them. Like I currently do. Um, you know, when they're 15, 16 and they've got a decision to make about whether they go to this party or not, they need to make the right decision. So that's a big part of what I do. And I try and model a good, healthy lifestyle of, you know, exercising and in, enjoying, enjoying fun. Like I think that is so important. Enjoying play, enjoying creativity. Um, and that's if I can if I can get my kids to do that and to take take good risks and to be good people, uh, I'll be I'll be wrapped.
0: That was a fantastic answer, Joyce. Um, it, it it strikes me that you've meditated on, on this topic of parenthood. Um, what what influenced that sort of way of thinking, or is it just something that's organically developed over time through just your own education and sort of what, what you've gleaned from other resources? Because the reason I ask that too is that what you just touched on there would resonate highly with me if I ever do become a father. Um, but it's it, it's from my experience, that's not what parenting has been in previous generations so it's uh it's very enlightening to 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 hear you have a perspective similar to mine and I don't want to make this like a group think thing where like just because you said something that resonates with me I think that you're correct or that we're correct but just how did that whole sort of mindset of parenthood develop you was like did you intentionally really try and research parenting in-, in-, in depthly or again is this just something that organically came over time from just personal development
1: yeah, I wouldn't say that I've, I've read that many books on the subject, Rob. I, both Kay, my wife, and I have been blessed with amazing parents as role models, so we've seen that. Um, but we've also got great role models with friends and people that we really admire as parents, and you try and pick the eyes out of what they do and, you know, the people that we're closest to, our our greatest friends in the whole world that we think are great parents. um, They have really good fun with their kids, but they've also um, uh, the kids show respect and have got really clear boundaries and things like that. And so you do pick up things and I think the best coaches, and I'm certainly not saying I'm the best coach, but the best coaches that I know and the ones that I try and emulate are very observant. And I, I really do try and be as observant as I can. And then I guess the, the next part to this is because I do so much coaching of people um, and the, a lot of the tools that we use, you can apply in yourself. And inherently, the, whenever you're coaching people, you, you, you're hearing yourself talk a little bit as well. And it, over time, it does... Help um, inform your approaches to things and your principles, and I, so I would say that it's that. And rather than you know listening to you know twelve thousand podcasts or reading you know a hundred different books on the subject, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that satisfactorily answers your question, but that's sort of the way I do it. It,
0: it strikes me. Um... It reminds me, I should say, of a conversation I had with uh, Jazz Rundawa, uh who is now at the Sacramento Kings. So, Jazz used to be the lead um, sports performance therapist at Altus. And I, I interned at Altus. So, when you mentioned Stu earlier on, and you were saying he's one of the best coaches in the world. I was like, I can vouch for that. Because <laughs> um, he was phenomenal. And I was just phenomenal in every aspect, you know, as a coach, as a human, as a person. I've nothing but a huge love for Stu and all the crew at Altus. But getting back to my point with Jazz is that he was, we were in the facility one day talking and he kind of said to me in a half joking way, do you have any parenting books? And I was like, oh, you guys, him and his wife was like, are you guys, you know, is she pregnant? And he goes, not yet. Because, you know, they, they were talking about having starting a family at the time. And I was like, what's with the parenting book? And he goes, he's like, Robbie, I deal with kids all day. And he kind of like, you know, like, because like, look at all the athletes and personalities that I have to deal with, like such different, you know, and particularly with, with track and field, because you were getting athletes from all over the world, such different walks of life. And it really struck me then, and God, like so much of coaching, you know, that communication aspect and the ability to be able to, be a parent like figure to all these athletes there's such carryover then into actual parenthood and then vice versa parenthood back into coaching so kind of what you just alluded to there really sort of uh, it, it resonated with that sort of experience with jazz
1: yeah i don't think i don't think coaching is parenthood but i think parenthood is coaching
0: and, yeah exactly exactly
1: um, and you know trust me i do not have this cracked like i've i've not got this solved Um, I'm so lucky that my wife is like elite, she's an elite mum. And so I I look at what she does and just go, right, well, that seems to be a pretty good approach. I'm going to, I'm going to follow that. Um, And, and, you know, there's, there's a, there is an element of luck involved as well. Like, you know, not all kids are the same and you know sometimes you 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 have to deal with challenges and the like. but what I what I do try and do and what we try and do is be really quite intentional about things um, without being too rigid you know Um, so and we also do take the view and I I used this analogy earlier but we do try and take the view of being gardeners rather than uh, rather than uh, gardeners rather than carpenters in in parenthood so um, that's probably one of our um defining principles i
0: suppose yeah i won't keep you too much longer joycey um, just again you, you use a beautiful word there that your wife is an elite mother and again that resonates to me because kind of when people are always like you know what most intrigues me i always say human performance and i always feel that then i need to follow up that with saying like that's not just now in sport Like, I'm talking about performance of being, like, a mother or a father or a friend or, you know, and then, like, there's CAO and military operations. And, you know, you could go down this whole rabbit hole, but I'm just like, you know, you said elite mother there. And I was like, yeah, that is human performance, like, to be, you know, to, to be a top mother and a top father. I mean, that is that's performance as well, you know, whereas I think just because we come from the world of sports, we're always thinking about performance on the AFL field or G, the GA pitch or, you know, the yeah. realms of soccer. So that resonates yeah, with well, me. If you,
1: talk, if you talk about, you know, the, some of the biggest um, consequential, important qualities that any CEO has are the ability to, to lead, the ability to negotiate and the ability to influence those three things. Um, I can't think of anyone that does that more than a mum.
0: So a question I actually really want to ask you, and I ask a, a lot of guests that come on the show, is I'm fascinated with mastery and learning. So when I come, and I suppose, you know, no better person asked ask than someone who edits a, a monumental text, not only once, but twice. And then obviously you've done uh, sports injury, and, um, prevention and rehabilitation so you've done three monumental books but how do you learn Joycey? so say there's a topic you just become engrossed with it you become like so passionate about it and you just want to know everything about it what is your whole learning process and how do you go about mastery
1: um it it really does depend on the topic so yeah i'm i'm tend to be quite flexible in that regard and i certainly don't Ascribe to the view that there are visual learners or there are auditory learners, because I think we're all that, and it's it's our context that defines what's going to be the most important thing for us. Um, so I uh, so I, I recognise that those things exist, but I don't think that you are one thing. I think we're I think humans are more adaptable than that. Um. But if there's one thing, so I, I guess if I look back on the most recent bit of, you know, formal education that I've done in the last five years was my MBA and I was thrust into um, uh, areas that I was really uncomfortable with yeah. and what I try and do, and this is hard for me because I don't love failing. Um but what I try and do is, is, is get this sense inside me of, oh, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this. And as soon as I get that, bang, that I make myself go into it. So um, if I'm uncomfortable about, um, uh, I don't know, um, juggling or something, that you can't learn how to juggle by, um reading in a book you can watch something on youtube but you've actually got to go and do it so the way the way i try and get mastery is dependent on the 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 outcome that is required but i guess the inner the inner sense is i will i'll lean hard into things that i that inherently i want to lean away from because i know that that's that's the right signal i suppose
0: yeah yeah the 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 name that's coming into my head is just Stu McMillan Stu McMillan because that's something that that that, that's something that Stu would when I was interning underneath him in terms of like challenging those elite athletes he's like learning happens at that line where it's just it's just like kind of getting beyond their abilities but it's 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 just that you don't want it to be so overwhelming that it's just not possible at, at that time and you don't want to obviously be too it's just like that goldilocks where they that's where elite performance is is enhanced like is like just where yeah. it's it, it, it's, yeah, so it's
1: it's called the zone of proximal development so it's that it's yeah. that area which is which is enough of a stretch but not so far off as to to look impossible
0: perfect yeah yeah. you summed it up absolutely perfect there and it goes back to sort of we we didn't actually say this but I suppose we kind of alluded to it and that learning is messy you talked about you know the difference between sort of teaching you know that a lot of us are, are sort of we're kind of like we want what what resonated with me when you spoke about that is that we want it to look perfect you know if it doesn't look perfect obviously this is no good then and whereas we're trying to and as I developed as a coach too it's it's trying to make others understand no, that learning is actually a messy type process like usually yeah. when you see the top coaches like it looks like chaos but they know what's going on they know that learning needs to take place and that it's not like it's non-linear as we know so it's a it's it's something that um yeah as I've matured as a coach I've appreciated it more too you know yeah and I, it's
1: funny cuz um um sam and Jackie talk a bit about this in their chapter about learning as well. If, if you're getting, if you're getting perfect outcomes, it's actually a sign that learning is not taking place. Um, so you, you actually do want to be looking for errors and the like um, and, and setting up training and setting up drills whereby, you know, it's not perfect because if you've got a, if you've got a first serve percentage of a hundred percent, It either means you're the best player the world's ever seen, bearing in mind that Roger Federer's first serve percentage is 60%, um, or you're not really going for it. And if you're not going for it, yeah, you're not really learning.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes down to reframing of failure. Yeah, because so many of us, we're conditioned to fear failure, whether we're conditioned intentionally or unintentionally. So it's that sort of aspect of like, we don't want to try things that are uncomfortable where true learning happens because it, it feels that we're not, you know, in the moment that, you know, we just, we want that instant gratification of to do something we're already good at and because it, it already feels good. But in the long term, it doesn't lead to any growth or development. Whereas what we need to do is get into that uncomfortable position in the present that will serve us later on down the road.
1: Yeah. I mean, it hurts our ego, right? And yeah. and we get, we get some pretty strong... Um, neurochemicals in our brain which keep us from doing those things and we get some really strong neurochemicals which you know addict us to doing fairly safe things as well yeah um and you know that's that's completely fine except you you just you've got to temper your expectations about how far you'll progress yeah and you know you don't you don't want to be at the edges of absolutely everything because um I, i don't know that you can necessarily live your life like that Um, but you've got to, I'm I'm not saying you, I'm saying, or the listener, I'm saying for me, I need to pick the things that I really, really want to lean hard into and, and become a a master or, or, you know, learn a lot about and embrace the fact that in order to do that, I will fail. Yeah. Um, but maybe protect my ego in other aspects. I don't know.
0: so second last one for you what are you currently reading yourself if you are reading anything and what would be your top book recommendation currently as well so what are you currently reading and what would be your top book recommendation
1: i'm so i read fiction at night and non-fiction in the day um i'm reading a book called radical uncertainty by john k and mervyn king okay um which I should flip to my nighttime reading because it is something that, you know, is sending me to sleep a little bit. <laughs> um, it is, it's a re- it's a really, really excellently put together, well-written book. Um, but it is, it's so, um, so dense that, you know, I, I I'm, I'm trawling through it cause I I need to, you know, write things and then think about it and you know, talk about learning being messy. Um, And I'm actually in the market for a new fiction book because I finished my one last night when I read Clara and the Sun, um, which is a beautiful book. And in terms of the best books to read, um, so I I, I read this for the second time fairly recently. I loved Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think Mm. it's a fantastic book. Um, And... Uh, what's another one that i'm from a fiction perspective i love a book called honeybee which was really interesting and i really liked um oh, i really really loved a book called the good ancestor nice by by um, a british philosopher called roman kisneric and it's and it's all about long-term thinking in short-term worlds and i It's funny, because I I thought you were going to ask this question, you sort of veered on this tangent early on when you were talking about parenthood. Um, The thing which has fundamentally changed for me is I'm less about winning on the weekend and I'm more about being a good ancestor. Mm. And this was just a beautifully written book about the need for us to do that and, and how we are actually quite good at it. We just need to embrace it in terms of getting on top of climate change and... Um, wealth inequality and you know gender discrimination and things like that. So it's that's one I, I reckon anyone can read.
0: Great stuff. Do you meditate, Joycey?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just it's it, it strikes me that you're an individual who who really takes deep appreciation of his own thoughts. Um, so that just kind of came to my mind. And just something I I've noticed within myself and within friends and peers within our own profession of. of sports performance or the sports world that we've kind of evolved from and grown from is that there does seem to be this, like, I don't know if maturity is the right word, but this sort of development of a wider perspective of like life and humanity, you know, from coaching. So Mark Kilgannon, who, who was with the Sydney Swans, we had this conversation before and like, it was, it was really a phenomenal conversation with Mark. Um, in that, like, you know, initially, you know, we, we got linked up through strength, strength and initiative but our conversations got into, like, you know, global warming and the environment and how we're leaving the world for our kids. And, you know, it just, it, it got into, like, s- such more deeper aspects of just humanity and what it means to be human and the universe at large. And, you know, I kind of see that with yourself, too, in, in sort of your own personal development and just even, like, in, in many others. I mean, I can start naming names now, but it would just make this podcast too long. But... Is that something that you've seen not only in yourself, but also within other peers and colleagues of ours in the field? And if so, like, why do you think that is? Is, it, is that just part of our human condition that the further we get older and mature, we just start to be more insightful on life itself?
1: Yeah, possibly. Um, I don't know that I've thought about it in those exact terms. The way I think about it is that coaching and being an s c coach is what I do. It's not who I am. And there's a there's an uh, an old American folk singer called Woody Guthrie, and he one of his in one of his songs he's got a line about um, we contain multitudes. So the the Robbie Burke, the, the podcaster, is going to be different to Robbie Burke, the the um, the partner or the son or the you know the philosopher and all those sorts of things. And holding on to an identity of what you do for for work, I actually think is really quite dangerous. And it's a big part of what I do with my exec coaching is trying to unpick that from some people because they get often people get to this stage of existential crisis of you know they they've lost their job or they want a new job and they, they're trying to transfer they're trying to transfer. a a job title, not a skill set. Um, and I would say that the people that I'm naturally drawn to as, as a person are the people that, you know, have a, a, a wide view of what life is. S and sports performance and sport is fantastic. And it's a huge part of my life, but it's not the only part of my life, you know? And and I, I like to I like to learn about other things because by learning by other, about other things it does help you with your one wood which is sport. So um, it's a roundabout way of answering your question, but um, it's kind of where my head takes me.
0: Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And and again, if Stu listens to this, he'll, he'll probably think I took like a Stu McMillan pill this morning because he's just resonating again in my mind because. He said one time, I don't read coaching books anymore, but every book I read is a coaching book. Yeah. You know, sort of, it just is a, yeah, again, kind of what you alluded to there really did resonate. So, Joyce, I'm taking you for dinner uh, whenever we do meet up. um And I'm sure you've heard this question many times in the podcast. But if you could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, real or fictitious, so they can be an actual person or a, a character, who would you bring to this dinner and why would you bring them five people?
1: okay so um so i so it's going to sound like a a cop out but i i'm I'm, i wouldn't want to do it without my wife being there even though i have dinner with her every night um uh i would i would be (laughs) this is controversial i would love i would love to have dinner with um adolf hitler I just think it would be so fascinating just to go, what are you thinking, mate? What are you thinking? Um, I would love to have dinner. And, and, you know, I'm giving no thought to the the chemistry of the guests here. <laughs> because I don't know that, um, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not certain that, that Barack Obama would would be fantastic next to um, Adolf Hitler. Um so if I'm I'm having five different dinners, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question slightly differently. I'm gonna have five different dinners with with one person.
0: That's great. Um, That's
1: great. Uh, I think um, um, Lin Manuel Miranda, I would love to um have dinner with. I think he's is clear, obviously clearly a genius. Um, uh, Dak Shepard, I would love to have dinner with. Um, so he's an American. Actor, writer, producer, and host of this after you, the second best podcast in the world uh, called Armchair Expert. Um, and what, what are we up to there, Rob? Um,
0: i give you one, more. If, one you're, more. if you're counting your wife as one, so we, we had, well. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. I'm gonna say my my granddad Joyce because I never really knew him because um, he died when i was I was really young um, but he brought the family out from England to Australia um, in search of you know a, a better life and the like and I just think the courage to be able to do that is extraordinary and and I see photos of my son and and I I I look at granddad Joyce and go, geez, there strong, strong lineage there. So I'd like to know him a little bit more, I think.
0: Think about how crazy that is. Because obviously in Ireland there was a big mass immigration to America and some to England, but particularly America, like and like this is before the time of any, like obviously, this is like, you know early or late 19th century, early 20th century, like they just got on a boat and just went across the world to this fucking country. And like, when you think about, right, that's Ireland to America, which in itself is a monumental trip, but then people from England to Australia and some Irish people actually went to Australia too, but not, not to the same went to America. Like, they didn't know why it were like, it was just nuts. Like imagine someone did that today. You'd be like, you're crazy. What do you mean you're just getting on a plane and like, not knowing where you're going? She's like, oh, I'm just going to go and just see, what see what it's like. It's like, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, so that they, they arrived in Melbourne and that's where I grew up. But And Melbourne's a really cosmopolitan city and Sydney is as well. And um, that's not what it was like in the 1950s. Like it was, Australia was a hard place to live in the 1950s. So we're, we're detached from the world already um, as it is now in 2021. Um, it was completely detached from the world in 1950s. So yeah, I just think that the, the courage to do that is, is um, beyond comprehension as we, you know, we can go over to England now and we're there in 24 hours knowing that we can get back in 24 hours. Um, whereas, and you know
0: and you know what it looks like and you have expectations of climate and weather and sort of people
1: yeah. yeah all that all that yeah yeah so and and also the the fact of migration is actually much more accepted now whereas um yeah i just i just think it was i would just if i get one dinner i, I would just love to know all about that yeah
0: to, uh, like to ask him like the decision that went like you know what like how like the it's brave like so brave like just yeah the courage to just do that is just phenomenal you know so yeah yeah, i'm fascinated by that too great answers Joycey. great answers and finally Joycey, where can people find out more about you what you're doing currently you mentioned your your um consultation role now and your sort of the projects you have got going on with numerous organizations i mean I suppose my question here is like, what, what, what are the services that you offer? And for those who are, you know, intrigued to know more, how can they reach out and contact you?
1: Yeah, most of the, I guess there's four strands to what I do. One is um, consulting to big, you know, corporates um, about high performance and, you know, strategy there. So bringing sport lenses into business, but then I consult to to sports about business thinking into into sport as well so i sort of see if you imagine there's a venn diagram overlap i sit in the middle there um so that's that's sort of the corporate and and organizational side of it and then um then the uh, the other bits is this executive coaching um stuff and and organizational reviews as well so for sports team um so coaches will call me and go i I know something's not quite right, but I don't know what it is. Um, So I'll go in and and do those sorts of things with sporting teams around the world. But then there's the executive coaching bit that I do with just individuals um, because I still want that fix of seeing that light bulb, you know? Um, So yeah, I do that. And I guess my best way to people get get people in contact me is probably probably through LinkedIn or through Twitter. And so it's, at david g joyce on on twitter and um on on linkedin as well and so yeah really happy to to engage with people um if if there's if they see value in it so
0: phenomenal and then in in terms of just the the book itself high performance training for sports second edition just the usual outlets for people to to get it
1: yeah yeah usual outlets i think there's been a bit of a supply chain issue getting into the uk just at the minute but it is available Mm -hmm. um amazon's obviously got on on um, in stock and human kinetics the publisher themselves have got it as well and yeah it's it's available around the world
0: it's and it's it's on ebook and kindle as well isn't it
1: yeah that's exactly right Yeah, that's exactly
0: sweet joycey that was phenomenal I, i really do appreciate it and just for the listeners as usual first world problems i was having technical issues and uh I wasn't being the most patient human being I could have been. I was like, God, Doug, it's just obviously because this had been scheduled in for so long and then the time zone difference. And, you know, you're just like, I just want this to work. And there's was, there was always like that part in your head going, you're fine, you've no terminal disease, it'll be okay. Joyce is a reasonable human being, he'll understand. And thank God, though, it did work. It's because it's this, this, was, this was a phenomenal conversation. So, uh, uh, Joyce, I'll just wrap up here and then I'll say my goodbye to you offline. But uh, for everyone, I mean what more needs to be said a phenomenal conversation all the links to everything that Joycey has I'll, I'll put up um and obviously if daniel's to this, and daniel because they're co co professionals on their projects but uh, the links to the new book i'll put into the show notes and all david's uh, social stuff i'll also put up But them um, until next time for everyone listening take care be well and stay strong <laughs>